Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, uh, coming back at you now as a married man. <laughs> it's my first podcast as a as a wedded man, <laughs> and um, and back from honeymoon, back into production, going again here. Uh, I hope some of you might have gotten a chance to see the video I posted this week about Scientology superpowers and my challenge to Scientologists about that. I just kind of had it up to here with. Uh, the, uh, you know, people telling me that I, you know, what I, people keep telling me that I'm saying things I'm not saying, and then uh, ridicule me or, or criticize me for uh, positions I haven't taken, and then, and then ignore what I do actually say. And so I just kind of got a little bit fed up with it. So I did a little rundown on, on what Hubbard's promises actually were. And I quote him, and then say, look, uh, you know, uh, show it to me or shut up. And that's, that's basically my bottom line with all of that. So this week on the podcast, I wanted to dive into something that was, in a way, Scientology-related, but actually is much more uh, related to current events, uh, I think, in terms of uh, its um, uh, how much it has to do with what's going on in the world today, and that is North Korea. For a long time, uh, we in the ex-Scientology community have talked about the fact that if Scientology ever cleared the planet or got into a position where it was actually taking over government uh, positions or taking over a government situation, you would have a country that looked an awful lot like North Korea. So in order to help me with this, because North Korea is a deep subject and one that requires nuanced thinking, there is nothing um, simple about North Korea. So you can think of it in simple terms if you want, but I would encourage that you not do that because that's not really how it should be looked at, especially with us being in the midst of potential negotiations with this country for, for the first time in, in many, many years. Uh, I think it's important we as American citizens understand what's actually going on there. So I took a, a little bit of a dive into it and uh, I then, got my friend, Dr. Jeff Wassel, on board because he has actually had some personal experience and background with North Korea from his history in the military, and I'll let him discuss that. So, Jeff, welcome to my podcast. Hey, Chris. Good to be with you once again. How are yes, you? Yes. Congratulations on joining the married crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, this is a, a relatively hot topic right now, and so what I would like to do is first talk about um, your background with it uh, and the general background and history of North Korea, because I don't think a lot of people, until it gets put front and center in the news, you know, there's a lot of countries in the world. And I don't know that everybody really pays a lot of attention to all of them and their background and history and what's the relevance of them. Our past actions with those countries, I think some people have the idea that this is the first time that North Korea has come to the table or just, you know, looked at negotiations, which is not true at all. No. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. So I think the thing to, if we look at it in context, is uh, if you consider maybe the Berlin airlift in 1948, the first real conflict between East and West after World War II. You know, there was a, a school of thought that uh, there was going to be a nuclear confrontation over, you know, the what they call the Berlin crisis. But where the Cold War got hot first was in Korea. You know, the, the North Koreans came across 
the border in 1950, made fairly good progress, beat back the relatively, uh, <laughs> we're talking about troops that were probably second and third tier that had been on liberty in, in Japan and the Korean army, the South Korean army wasn't anything. So the American force, I mean, it was just, it was a recipe for disaster. And the North Koreans were, were going to stop at what was called the Pusan perimeter. Uh, fast forward, the Chinese intervene, uh, fight, uh, the UN armies fight them back to a stalemate on the Korean-Chinese border. We get the current status quo, which is a armistice, not a a formal cessation of hostilities. So yeah, so what I was reading is that there has been no peace agreement between North and South Korea all the way to now. Yeah, so part of the narrative that we're living with today is because there's been, you know, a state of really belligerence between East and West on the Korean Peninsula ever since. And Korea occupies a very unique strategic place in uh, Asia as far as being a dagger, if you will, pointed at Japan. Uh, it allows whoever owns Korea uh, cast control over the Sea of Japan, the Sea of Okust. Uh, you know, you've got Russia, China. I mean, it's one of these real strategic parts of the world. So, okay. um, and, you know, Korea has a very tortured history, as a lot of parts of Asia do. It was a relatively benign place, you know, three kingdoms up until the, the Japanese invaded in 19, right around the turn of the century, and it became basically a Japanese serenity, or, or serenity, a, a protectorate, if you will, uh, up until the beginning of World War II, or actually through the end of World War II. So you're talking about 35 years of Japanese occupation. Exactly. And, <clears throat> and, and just to set the stage a little bit even more in terms of context of North Korea and South Korea or Korea, the Korean Peninsula, this was a nation that goes back to like 3300 BC in terms of oh, how absolutely. long it's been around. Absolutely. It was it was and, one of these places that you know was very influential on the on the on the Chinese on the Japanese. I mean, yep. it was a a, a locus of of culture. Uh, it, you know, they call it the Hermit Kingdom, but it was uh, it was kind of not until it became a communist state. Uh, it was a truly hermetic, if you will. But back in the day, you know, a lot of export with China uh, in cultural trade. Uh, and of course, with Japan. So uh, it's been a player for many, many centuries. And, you know, so there's a great sense of culture, history, identity, all the things that, uh, you know, that we have is in ancient states, you know, relative to the United States, we're rookies compared to how long Korea's been around. So exactly. it's a classic. I wanted to I wanted to set the stage there a little bit because I don't want people thinking that these are a bunch of backwards savages or no. you know, some primitive culture or something. These guys w go way back, and they, had, they were a very civilizing influence on the, on the China-Japan you know, region uh, during some parts of you know, the, uh, where we were having the Dark Ages you know, in sure. Western Europe. You know, these guys were over there bringing philosophy and Confucianism, I mean, all kinds of things. So, so there's a rich history there to look at. That's the only really, really the point I wanted to make to start with. Yeah, it's you know the more it's called the land of the morning calm, is always been its traditional. Uh, it's it's been a place where philosophy has has uh, been you know kind of the, the key driver. It wasn't you know a real military power per se. It was more of a of kind of a the way Ireland was in the dark ages. You know the Irish 
were the keepers of the records and, and of literacy during the dark ages. And so you could consider Korea being the same, you know, highly literate population, a religious culture of, of record keeping, documentation, all these things. So uh, it flourished in times of when there was a lot of strife on in China and Japan, as you say. So yes, we're not talking about a people that have a warrior culture, have a warrior tradition. So, you know, the belligerence that we see now is more a function of 20th century norms than it is anything that's historical. Well, exactly. And and, and when we were talking about this before we did the podcast, um, you know, you had mentioned in an earlier conversation that the, the earlier 20th century is really, uh, from a historical perspective, is, is really a period of the rise of authoritarianism, dictatorships, Absolutely. tyrants, uh, in many, many places in the world. And this, of course, goes along with, uh, you know, what happened in Soviet Russia. I mean, they had their revolution, and uh, out of that revolution uh, came even worse. I mean, you know, Stalin and, and all of that was, certainly we wouldn't characterize any of that as, oh, it was really good for Russia. <laughs> and and here in the Korean Peninsula, you had the, after World War II, you have this, okay, prior to World War II, you had a you know, decades-long Japanese, imperial Japanese occupation, which certainly was not good for them, no. and uh, very culturally changing. And then you had World War II go down, and the world then starts getting split up, and, and, we, and Americans decide, okay, 38th parallel, there's going to be a North and a South Korea, just like there was an East and a West Berlin, if I understand it right. And, and so we have this communist vassal state now. It wasn't necessarily the United States, but it was part of the Potsdam conversation yeah. at yeah. the end of, yeah. So you've got, this was a bone toward Russia based on, uh, you know, the way the world was divided after the end of World War II. So what's right. interesting right. is, you know, Kim Bel-jung, who was, you know, the, the, the granddaddy of, of the current uh, political scene, if you will, the Kim dynasty was a yeah. guerrilla against Japanese troops at, you know, starting from about 1933 on. Uh, this is where Juche starts to get its ideals. This is where this in, this idea of the the uh, the national Korean nationalism kind of has a resurgence in terms of what we would think of 20th century nationalism, and not in the sense of fascist nationalism. This is more this is a Korean identity against the Japanese oppressor. And so he starts kicking this idea around of, you know, his own personal philosophy. You fast forward to the Soviet occupation, he becomes their go-to guy. He becomes the, the premier, the Stalinist reincarnation of, of, of communism in the northern, in North Korea. Um, but in a way, uh, he, he, he refutes some of that. He doesn't, he's not really a Marxist-Leninist. He's more of a Maoist in the sense that, you know, Juche has a heavy agrarian component to it. And if you look at uh, classic Maoism. And, and, we, and, we need to, and we need to actually stop right there because we've used this word twice now. And I don't think people are quite tracking with this word. I, it was a word I had never heard in my life until yesterday. The word Juche refers to a philosophic system and it has... We're going to talk a great deal about it in this podcast, but it's a it's a system of thought, and it means the word itself actually means self reliance, and it's right. a philosophical system, it's a political system, it is a, re a state religion in some ways. It's been analyzed yeah. that way yeah. uh, by people other than me, and um, and so there's a lot to this, but it basically boils down to a concept of of nationalism, of self reliance, of self sufficiency, of maintaining one's own state in the world, not relying upon other people or other things for support or right. help. 
so that's that's sort of the philosophy that came out of this, and Kim uh, Il Sung, you know, developed this uh, philosophy as part of his own anti-imperial Japanese. You know, get these guys out of here. We need to be our own people again. Sounds good. Sounds perfectly fine. You know, but out, but then they align with Soviet Russia, and things go kind of south, as far as I see. Well, there's two things think? that are unique, too, in that, you know, the, the whole cult of personality thing really doesn't come to the fore until Khrushchev in 1954 really kind of coins the term relative to, you know, the post-Stalin era. You know, he, he refutes it. He repudiates it. He says, you know, Stalin, we have to go back to the classic ideals of communism where, you know, the, the, the party is for the people, the proletariat. We can't have individuals owning the state, as it were. Yet it becomes very apropos because during this time, you've got Evner Hoxner in Albania, you've got Ceausescu, you've got all these guys, you know, rising to the fore in communist states based on, you know, kind of localized cults of personality because of these strong right. man that, you know, kind of plays itself to the communist narrative. And then, of course, Mao right around in the corner. So, Kim is seeing this. He's a smart guy. He picks a little bit of here, a little bit of there. So Juche becomes this all-encompassing philosophy that maps to the kind of the dynastic ideas. Of, you know, this is where Korea is very unique in it. It has had a dynasty of of uh, a cult of personality, if you will. You know, it's right. father, son, son. I mean, there's an inheritance there. It's not like you know Stalin and Khrushchev, where you had you know there's actually more of a, a traditional political succession. So Juche exactly. becomes you know a, a philosophy above and beyond. It's very unique to Korea, and I think it's really important people understand that, because it drives a lot of the way that, that the Koreans behave from, you know, now into the millennia, even the present day. Juche is very much an under, it's it, it underwrites all of the way Korea thinks, be it military, economically, social, politically, all that stuff. That's right. And in the 1970s, in fact, still under the rule of the original guy, Kim, Il, Kim Il-sung, am I saying that right? Yep. Yeah. So under his rule, because he ruled for 40-plus years um, yeah. from World War II forward um, until... I mean, it was quite a run. Yeah, so... 1994, that's right. So in the 1970s, they were even trying to propagate uh, Juche to other countries. They were holding yep. summits in Madagascar. They had a, an international conference on it. I mean, they were really promoting that their brand of socialism, so to speak, if you want to simplify it into something you know, solid like that, you can say, okay, this is the Korean brand of, of it's not Marxist-Leninism, it's, it's something different now. Um, and they were trying to bring other countries on board, and, you know, in the third world and this kind of thing. So they were, they were reaching out to, to, to propagate this. And then, um, well, also, and, and... It played to the political narrative at the time. You know, this is the age of liberation movements. You've got, you know, Korea, North Korea is funding the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Black September. It's a player, uh, you know, it's giving, you know, Libya and, and Korea, all these countries on the uh, socialist spectrum, if you will, are funding anti-Western liberation movements or third world liberation movements. So, you know, it's a guns versus butter thing. You know, in addition to cases of Kalashnikov, we're going to export Juche. We're going to, here's a philosophy, one more tool in the, uh, uh, the liberation fighter's bag that he can take into battle with him, if you will. The idea of, you know, there's Marxist independence, there's a Marxist individual, there's there's a, the Maoist individual. 
here's the, the you know the juche driven individual. So it's it was a very it was a time where there was a lot of reciprocity for ideas like that, um, you know, amongst uh, you know liberation theologists and and uh, thinkers and all these people that were kind of in the stew as it were at the time. So right. Uh, right. you know, North Korea got a lot of track with it. I mean, there was, you know, there, it was a way of almost legitimizing North Korea on the world stage as a, as a, a place where, of, of independent political thought. Exactly. But then something happened in the 1980s that kind of, uh, kind of cut them off at the knees. And that was that while they had a philosophy of self-reliance and, and great, you know, really emphasized their independence, that was what they were constantly preaching on the world stage. Russia was still, fun, you know, giving them a Absolutely. lot of supplies and aid. I think they had formed alliances with, with uh, China by this point. And so they were, they were receiving aid that they needed. Yeah, I mean, the whole Warsaw, the whole Eastern Bloc, if you will, was trading with them. Right. And this was, so you know, they, in, in, in Cuba, all these uh, satellite states around Russia, client states, if you will, is the proper term, were all heavily dependent on the Soviet Union. When that house of cards came down, it was a domino effect in reverse, which is kind of ironic when you think about the first domino to fall in, in the Western, you know, the Western uh, paranoia about communism was Korea, right? So That's here right. you go, you fast forward, you know, 30 years, and all of a sudden, here's the thing going in inverse. So Exactly. Uh, so we, yeah. we know that you know, Soviet Russia was not succeeding, was not making it go economically, and uh, and they ended up collapsing uh, for a number of reasons. I don't want to simplify it down to one one thing. But I think when they did, here, let's think about it. You know, the main thing is the command economy. You know, without getting into you know Star Wars and all this other stuff, and you know, rising defense budgets. At the end of the day, if you can't feed yourself. What what's left? If you can't sell, if you can't build a decent refrigerator, if you can't build a decent car, yeah, all these things that are what makes market economy. And it's not necessarily capitalism per se, but it's the fact you have effective supply and demand. There's a there's an economy there that's based on proper market economics rather than a centralized model. And in Korea, you've already have a problem because it's an you know it's basically an agrarian state with a uh, a in its industry completely subsidized by the Soviet Union. Client right. state goes away. You don't have the intelligentsia. You don't have the the uh, labor resources to keep this thing afloat. What are you going to do? Exactly. And that was the position that they uh, found themselves in uh, when Russia disappeared. Basic. I mean, I guess you could also make, you know, their sugar daddy. You know? Sure. I mean, well, like you know, Cuba was the cent, man. That's all they were selling them was sugar. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so there, were a lot of, there were a lot of artificial props absolutely. keeping their economy going and keeping the country going. And when those went away and Soviet and, you know, Soviet Russia disappeared and, and now we have, you know, Russia, um, when all that went away, then they had some very, very real world problems that they're going to have to deal with. And there is another aspect of this, which would, of, of Juche, which I want to get into, which is the military part of this. Because this is another thing that's kind of unique-ish to North Korea, I think. It is called Songun, uh, S-O-N-G-U-N, if I'm pronouncing that right. And it's, quote, the leadership method under the principle of giving priority to the military and resolving the problems that may occur in the course of revolution and construction as well as establishing the military as the main body of the revolution in the course of achieving the total task of socialism. 
And uh, and this went in, um, I, it says uh, September 1998, the North Korean constitution was revised and it made the National Defense Commission the highest military body, became the supreme body of the state. I mean, this was a, this was a big deal in North Korea that, that the military are, is not just a branch or arm of the government, it, it practically is the government in many ways. So, there, you know, so there's two things here to think about there. Yeah. In totalitarian states, um, in a way, it, it, again, depending on the strength of the, the cult of personality or the uh, the weight, if you will, between the individual versus the collective government, you know, say Hitler versus the Reichstag or, or Mao versus, uh, you know, the people's, you know, the people's assembly or what have you, these are all very powerful individuals. So they're not really in danger of being overthrown to some extent. However, you know, they're always looking over their shoulder. So, you know, the army in Korea is also its workforce. It's its agrarian arm. It's out there helping the peasants harvest the fields. I mean, all these things. It's this huge labor force. I mean, you're talking 1.6 million men under arms, another eight some odd million in a reserve status. So you've got it. I mean, this is a collective body. Now, granted, this is elastic over time. But, uh, you know, at one point, the South Korean army was larger than the Korean army. But this is a hedge. What basically what's being done is, OK, you know, we're going to we're coming we're looking at hard times here we better have the army on board as far as being able to facilitate our economic strength you know like in china the people's republic or the people's liberation army is a huge industrial complex i mean they do everything from build washing machines to fighter airplanes so wow. not that yeah, I mean, so the military in totalitarian states, and this was the same thing in, in Nazi Germany. The SS ran concentration camps, used slave labor to build, you know, IG Farben's petrochemical plants outside of Auschwitz. I mean, there's a there's always been a social economic component to the military in totalitarian states. So Korea's not really that different. Except here, because it's a smaller state, it's it's very, very isolated in the way it is. The army is the de facto infrastructure. It's a social means of control in addition to the um, the probative means of control, if you will, as far as a security state and things like this. So to incorporate them into the constitution was very I mean, it was probably almost necessary. So, you know, this is a shrewd, you know, Kim Il-sung is thinking, okay, I'm going to throw a bone in my generals and say, look, you know, we're going to ride this thing through. But, you know, the quid pro quo here is, you know, when we start making more money foreign exchange wise, you know, there's going to be, uh, you're going to get to get a little bit of the, of the pie as it were. And right. this place, again, the game moving forward as far as foreign exchange, uh, this, you know, selling missile technology, whatever it may be it as it may, uh, you're going to see most of Korea's economics built around uh, kind of military constrictions like Again, missiles, uh, counterfeiting, drug running—you know—stuff that is, you know, basically illegal behavior that has to be, you know, state, state sanctioned. I mean, it's the only way you get away with it. Exactly, and and this now, when in this in this timeline that we're sort of laying out here, right? We've gotten up through the 1990s now, so we're coming up pretty close to present. Um, Bill Clinton comes into office in the early 2000s, and we see. A, an attempt actually before at, then it was he, he was we're talking about 95 oh yeah yeah, yeah. So, back 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 sorry uh, that's yeah. right. back before that there's an attempt made at a dialogue at a, at a hey let's let's united states north korea let's let's talk let's let's figure some things out well, actually even before then so in 94 you have a huge famine 
you know, the whole the bottom falls out of the agriconomy in Korea. And I mean, you know, millions of people die from famine. So the United Nations steps in, creates a program. And, and this took a lot of soul searching within Korea to accept external aid. Because one, it runs completely counter to Juche. Right. It runs completely counter to the idea of letting Western influence come in. And so what Clinton, the Clinton administration comes along and piggybacks on that with some carrot and stick about their behavior. Because, you know, we're getting rumblings now about a nuclear program. Right. You know, of course, there's already been, you know, a, a lot of cross-border conflict with the South Koreans. You know, the, the, the Korean, the North Koreans have tried to assassinate the, the president of South Korea probably 12, 13 times over the, you know, the course of, I mean, these guys have been at war, you know. So right. this, is, this is no small potatoes. You know, Korea, South Korea has some skin in this game. You know, if they're feeding people, they're going to be able to at least have some leverage. And this goes to your point about, you know, maybe here's the carrot and approach rather than, you know, fast forward to the Bush administration, you know, that labels them the axis of evil, you know, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea as being the boogeyman in 19, or, you know, the uh, 2000, 2001, 2003, 2003 yeah, it seems to me in hindsight, uh, you know, again, with my limited level of understanding of this, that that was a big mistake. Like, it seemed like there was some well, yeah, kind I, of opportunity there that, Bill Clinton got on to, and I, I'm not a, I'm not a big pro Clinton person. I'm talking about this issue right now, um, you know. So any Clinton people out there, just, just please, just let's go with this here. Bill Clinton was the president. So there was a, there was a potential of, of, of communication, of, of some dialogue going on there, and then Bush comes in and, nope, not doing any of that. Sanction, well, I mean, sanction, sanction. You also have to look at, you know, there's two. There's, a, there's an international thing and there's a domestic component to this, as there always is in American politics. Yep. So, you know, with the, the thing with the food aid from the United States is that, you know, there's always restrictions or provisions assigned to it, this, that, and the other thing. Korea was also, or North Korea was also using that aid as a way to manipulate, you know, the, the domestic agenda. You know, food has always been used as a control mechanism in Korea just because they're always so close to the edge all the time, you know, from starvation. And then you have the debacle going on in Somalia. You have Clinton trying to do something in Afghanistan. So there's a lot of foreign policy stuff going on here that ends up really, I think, uh, taking the, the, the eye off the ball. And this is, you know, unfortunately, it kind of died a slow death, you know, and after the ship, the, the great maybe too many left. balls in the air. Yeah, exactly. And I think, okay. you know, because the Clinton, you know, the, the end, the, the toward the end of the Clinton, and plus, you know, he's getting impeached. I mean, there's all this stuff going on that it's really, how are you going to, you know, at, 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 you look at the wall, you know, what are you going to really work on that's sticking, feeding the North Koreans or keeping in, you know, keeping in, in office, right? Right. Well, that was so, Clinton. So, so you're saying, so they, so the pullback started during that administration then? I, I would say not so much a pullback. I would just say that it kind of, you know, fell by the by. I think that, okay. you know, we, you know, we had made arrangements, you know, we shipped them grain, the UN shipped, you know, under the auspices of the UN. But at the end of the day, they're only going to do so much with what they had at the time. And and I think they we fed them enough, or the, the international community fed Korea or North Korea enough to the point where uh, they were able to kind of regroup for a bit because they start, you know, misbehaving again. They start getting on the international stage. They become a proliferator. They're starting to sell missile technology to the Iraqis, to the, anybody. 
you know. So they're looking for foreign exchange. And with that foreign exchange, they can buy, you know, other – they can find other sources outside of the UN to, for grain, even though they're under uh, certain types of sanctions, this, that, and the other thing. There's ways around this stuff is, is you know, you'll find I out. Okay. I think what happened is – it's it's too bad because of 9/11 that the Bush administration, you know, painted everybody that was a bad actor, quote unquote, with a very broad brush, right? Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, I think, you know, we're looking at this huge massed army, but we're forgetting what's behind it. And as we've talked earlier, the carrot and stick probably would have been a better way to to have moderated Korea's I, I, behavior. I, I tend to think so, and I think yeah. I think we were a bit clumsy, and uh, I think we ourselves, the United States pulled in our flippers, got very paranoid, got, got a little weirded out uh, for a number of years following 9-11. Now, I was in the sea organization at that time. I had a very, you know, sort of standoffish understanding of what was going on foreign policy-wise. I was a little yeah, involved yeah. with other things. Um, but it, again, in retrospect, I look at it and I go, mm, that, we, we could have played that better. You know, at this time, South Korea was implementing what they called the sunshine policy. You know, they were actually actively engaging with the North, trying to, you know, moderate some of this stuff. And so it's almost like you had competing agendas. Mm -hmm. And I think this was another thing that the, the Bush administration fell by the by. They were so uh, obsessed with al-Qaeda and the rest of the event, and I mean justifiably so to some extent, that they figured let South Korea run with it. And they actually did a pretty good job. But then, you know, South Korean administrations changed. There was corruption in the South Korean government. So, I mean, you know, things uh, – there's a lot <laughs> – there's a lot more going on under the hood on the Korean Peninsula than what America's involved in, and this is yeah, the thing. Exactly. And this is part of this, the schizophrenic nature of our policy there. It's, you know, we got to triangulate between the North, the South, and our own sense of entitlement slash ineptitude slash whatever. Exactly. Right? And regime change on our side by, you know, regime change meaning the president, you know, new president comes in. Sometimes right. they will new, new broom the situation, and sometimes they'll carry on with whatever was going on before, and sometimes they'll just kind of let it go nowhere. And I, and I, if, if I have it right from what we were talking about earlier, Obama wasn't so great on the foreign policy no, side and with I think this. The other thing too, you have to remember, if we, if we keep going back to Juche, the nuclear program is emblematic of Juche. You know, this is a way of, you know, rallying around the flag, you know, showing that we're a first world nation or first world nation. We have, you know, the capability to to create nuclear technology. We've got an infrastructure. We have, uh, you know, schools and such that can, you know, provide, uh, you know, the academic chops to provide world class scientists, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you look at the tests and everything, it, it's failed miserably because there's still a certain a national infrastructure, a national polity that you have to organize to be able to maintain a, uh, you know, an economy that will support the the financial needs for that broad of, of I mean, building bombs is not cheap. You know, right. I mean, you look at the infrastructure in the United States, Sandy National Labs, Manhattan, all that stuff, that costs an awful lot of money. And it's one thing to get the design, it's another to get the technology to implement the design. Yeah, and so exactly. basically, well, they bankrupt themselves. Okay. Well, I want to I want to just kind of carry forward on the timeline here. I want to talk. You know, I want to finish up what we're talking about in terms of America's relationship with North Korea, and then we'll dive into Juche a lot more because I want to then sure. talk about North Korea itself. But first, I wanted to kind of clear the air on what we mm -hmm. have and haven't done with North Korea over the years. It being a complex situation, and keep in mind, you know, you can really appreciate 
the 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 level of work and uh, that that goes on at the State Department when you think that this is the kind of thing that goes on with every country in the world in our relationship with them. You know, there are so many balls in the air uh, of so many kinds, so much going well, on. Well, alone when you have to you have to negotiate and have relationships with Japan, China. Russia, all the you know the, these yep. actors that are surround Korea, especially Japan, because there's you know there's a lot of historical animus there because of the war and other things like that, and also there's a legitimate threat. The Japanese are within you know tactical, not even ballistic missile range of Korea, so they've right. got real skin in the game. Yeah. So there's you know there's a, there's a, a a a whole other level of balances that America has to 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 play here. And we're we're essentially a Pacific facing nation. When you look at the way that our strategic view is, it, we we're you know we're not we're a maritime nation. We're in the middle of two great oceans, but yet we've always traditionally looked to the Pacific as where our destiny is. Mm -hmm. So that brings up you know the rise of China. You've got Japan in there. I mean, these are you know nation states that can severely impact our ability to trade, to do other things, and certainly having a rogue actor, quote unquote, that can toss a theoretically toss a ballistic missile onto the West Coast, or hell Guam, is uh, is a concern. Exactly. And so I think, you know, to back to your point, what what North Korea did really well is balance that risk probability against, you know, uh, our punitive outlook on Korea. OK, you guys aren't going to feed us. You're going to, you know, put all these sanctions on us. Screw you. We're going to keep building bombs. And we got the ability now to put them on top of a missile and perhaps hit Hawaii or hit Guam. So yep. that's a compelling reason to re-engage. And this is where the Obama administration dropped the ball. They just kind of, you know, figured we'll just rely on sanctions instead of being proactive and either negotiating through third world or third world, uh, third party states like China or other or the so anybody or the Russians, anybody that had a relationship with Korea, we just kind of said to heck with it. We're going to let it hang. And then you fast forward to the Trump administration, they're going to play to their base and say, hey, you know, we got to go after this guy. He's a bad actor, you know, and bang, we have brinksmanship. Now, exactly, because it's a I, bit of a it's a bit of a pendulum swing what's going on yes, right now. Is. And yes, and neither end, as far as I'm concerned, is is the sensible one. I, I you know, I think something in the middle tends to tends to have a bit more appeal, but we go from nothing or kick the ball down the road. And somebody else will take care of it. We'll just kind of keep the sanctions going with the Obama administration to, oh, well, I'm going to show this guy who's boss. I'm head of the United States, and I've got a nuclear arsenal, and screw this little guy, this rocket man. I'll show him. Well, and, you it's, know, it's that, almost To me, that sounds just as nuts, you know? It's, it's funny because uh, you almost look at it as being a fluke that, you know, there was a serendipitous arrival of the, the Koreans realizing that this is a – a non-starter. This is bankrupting us. Uh, two, technically, we don't have the chops to make it work. And meanwhile, over here, Trump comes along and starts rattling his saber. And it's all like it came together in a way that was, you know, in a way, almost, I don't even think it was planned. I mean, it, it, to me, it's almost, you know, Trump drew the, the won the lottery when this all happened, as far as having this, you know, kind of a tailor-made crisis with a out, you know, laid out to him, you know, right. and said, hey, Hey, you have a way here that you might be able to to negate North Korea's ability to uh, maintain a nuclear arsenal, and here we are. And we, the and, first and, and I actually, I, I just want to say up front, sorry to cut you off there, but I just want to say, I hope they succeed at that. I want I the United States government to successfully negotiate 
a positive outcome with North Korea on this on this whole issue. I want to see, and and I'm gonna and North Korea needs us to do that because, and we're gonna go into why in in just a minute. Uh, North Korea is in a really really bad place, and their leadership has been uh, very Scientology esque over the years. Much more much worse actually, but it's an easy word to use to relate to a lot of my viewers. Um, you know, as to as to how bad it's been there, it's been bad, really bad. <laughs> so it's not yeah. like there. You know, this whole this this history lesson is really just to kind of contextualize what's going on right now, not to paint these guys as it, it put values on this of oh they're good or they're you know this or that. That's not you know, but but it doesn't hurt anybody to get more information about this stuff and and get more context to what's going on. It well, certainly has helped well, me I, understand. I think it there's this there's this term in international relations called rapprochement, which is the idea where nation states bring together, you know, they they put all their cards on the table and work out their differences, and at least create some type of you know bilateral relationship. And I think that there's the the time is right now. One, I mean, it's an expensive proposition. You know, we maintain a lot of troops over there. We have for a long time. The South Koreans, I'm sure, would love to not have to be always extra exercising and maintaining a large portion of their defense, their GDP on, on making sure the Korean, North Koreans aren't coming across the border. Um, and I'm sure that if you look at the gross disproportionate amount of money that North Korea spends on weaponry and main feeding that army, I mean, my Lord, the things that it could do with that money. I mean, we, we all know that just from basic supply and demand when it comes to military expenditure. So, I mean, it's a win-win all the way around. And, you know, having been in the military myself, having been there and seeing, you know, that place is just, it can go in a heartbeat. I don't think people understand the, the, the closeness by which um, we operate where, uh, you know, just an air of very simplistic portion, proportions can tee off something at the demilitarization militarized zone. I mean, it's it's a scary place. You're you know you're looking at it's heavily mined. Uh, I mean, at any given point in time, Seoul's only what 38 miles south of the DMZ. The, the the North Koreans could level it in a heartbeat if they really decided they wanted to do something. Now, mind you, the, the response would be catastrophic. But this is why it's such a it's it's one of the world's truly dangerous places. Right. And if we could you know if we can put that one to bed. You wonder what can happen in Gaza. You wonder what could happen in the relationship with Iran. I mean, it's, there's a domino, I think a very positive domino effect uh, based on just, you know, the, the, the level of contentiousness by which America, not even America itself, but the West views a lot of these second and third world trouble spots. Exactly. And, and Exactly. Um, and that's why my effort with my podcast, my voice, what I can do to contribute to this is to, um, is to try to push out you know, sense understanding. You know, some some education on this and some sensible uh, talk about it, so that we're not all hawkish and you know in this weird John Bolton camp of oh yeah, we just need to nuke them, just nuke them, just nuke them. And I don't know yeah. that John Bolton's actually saying that, but that's how the media is portraying what his position is. Well, uh, you know, John Bolton's no idiot. He's been around a long time, and I, I think uh, you know, depending on where you know what side of the political spectrum, at the end of the day. You're still looking at there's a lot more than one guy sitting at the table at the UN saying Newcomb. I mean, there's a whole command. I mean, you know, the last people right. want to go to war are you know the, the troopers in the Second Infantry Division sitting over there on the TMZ, right? Yeah, exactly. And so this is this is a thing I think the media never gets, and it's it's it harkens back to the day of yellow journalism and Hearst and what happened around the USS Maine at the beginning of the Spanish American War. Right. This is not new. 
right? We create boogeyman. We go out and, you know, we need somebody that we need to triangulate on when things aren't going well at home. Or if even if they are going well at home, hey, let's up the ante and go, you know, see what uh, we can do abroad. And as I said earlier, you know, we're really good at wrecking things, breaking things as Americans. We've got this marvelous military, but yet at the end of the day, we still got, if we're going to do it right, we got to go fix it, as we saw was the problem post. In Iraq, you know, that's the, right. I would Iraq like and, to not break it in the first place. I would like it to. It's, oh, I think absolutely. It's, I think it's already absolutely. broken uh, beyond repair in some ways, North Korea. Uh, yeah. And let's go ahead and get into that now. Um, you know, this Juche thing is a, is a, is a nation, is a national philosophy or or political view, um, there's a lot to it. We don't have to get into all the specifics of it and stuff, but like I said, basically it means self-reliance. It's a very self-centric, isolationist, nationalistic philosophy. How would you describe it? So when I was on active duty and looking at uh, working in the intelligence field, I, one of the places I did order battle analysis was, was North Korea. I was tasked with that because I was attached to Marine units that were operating in the, the, the North Pacific. So. At the time, we're talking, you know, late 70s, early 80s, the Korean military, the North Korean military is incredibly formidable. And it was formidable because of this idea of Juche. There was a lot of, you know, even though they had bought weapons from the Chinese, from uh, the Russians and such, they had really worked on tactics, what they call TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures that were very specific, very germane to the way that they would operate on the peninsula in combat against the United States and, and South Korea. They have uh, incredible understanding of terrain, how to use the limitations of what they have. So, but at that time, they were well-fed, well-armed. You know, they had the, you know, the, the, the whole structure, if you will, of the North Korean army was very, very formidable. It was certainly a formidable adversary. So, and Juche had a big part of that because it's a political thing. It's also, you know, with the, the military thing, it's all about independence and, and down to the individual soldier. Now, mind you, there's not a lot of initiative in, in totalitarian armies, certainly in, in the Korean army, even in the Soviet army. This is one thing that was always uh, the hedge against uh, Warsaw Pact or uh, Eastern European actors uh, as an American soldier or Marine, what have you, was the, the freedom of independence that you had at the tactical level, right? So, you know, if, if you're not free thinking, it doesn't make you that successful. Overwhelming might is only one component of warfare, right? But even at the end of the day, this, the North Koreans at that point in time were something to be considered. Plus, they had the economy because the Soviet was the Soviet was still being propped in. up, yeah. Absolutely. So you fast forward to now. Um, Juche is what's kind of keeping the whole thing together, but it's, you know, you're looking at a hollow force to some extent. It's not the same military I looked at. So what they're doing is they're using Juche as a way to create asymmetrical warfare or a, a way to face off the West asymmetrically through hacking, through the use of uh, special forces troops, uh, mini sub. I mean, they're looking, they're, they're countering the economic might of the West uh, through independent means. They're going back and trying to predestine their own abilities and warfare and the economy by looking to themselves. Again, this organics, this this idea of organic growth, of organic, uh, of just self-reliance. Again, that's what it means. So, right. uh, but you know, without foreign exchange, there's only so much self-reliance you can do. And this is why um, there. I, I say that their army's hollow. There was an incident. Uh, I want to say a couple months back where a, a uh, North Korean trooper defected and was shot in the shoulder by, actually was shot six times by his fellow troopers when he was defecting. 
And when they medevaced him out to a hospital right across the DMZ, the doctor that operated on was appalled. The guy was riddled with tapeworms. He was uh, malnourished. And this was a this is a guy that's a border guard, so he's you know pretty elite, as it were. So if this is a state of their military where you are, they can't even feed their, and his weapon was rusty. I mean, all the stuff that an analyst would look and say, hmm, these are markers of, uh, of an army that's waning. You have to then extrapolate to what's the society in general. And I'm not talking about the elite in Pyongyang. I'm talking about these people that are having subsistence farmers out in the middle of nowhere, which are providing the labor that's trying to keep this whole thing afloat. You're, you've got a, I mean, there's a recipe now for, I wouldn't say insurrection, but certainly uh, the time is right for, you know, some type of, of collective, uh, you know, I don't know, some type of political, uh, you know, a groundswell of political action. Exactly. You can't put everybody in a prison camp. Exactly. You know, and, and, um, and I want to talk about those prison camps in a second. But the, um, the, the point you're making is really, really important. Um, the Juche is not just a political party or political philosophy, though. It also has what some have I mentioned earlier, a religious component to it. There is a sacred leader. Now, this is where we get into cult characteristics. Let's start actually yeah. having this cult conversation now. There are cultish characteristics to North Korea that you can actually point to and go, this is why we say it, that Scientology would turn into this. There is a sacred leader. He is literally called Dear Father or the Father or Great Leader. Uh, that, that's his title, right? And this passes down dynastically, like you mentioned. Uh, through the well, Kim somebody, family. you know, there's also they, they say that the term the cult of Mount Patuco, which is this, you know, sacred mountain in uh, in Korea where the Kims supposedly were all born, right. and it, you know, this is a so they literally have emerged from the land, you know, giving them this. I mean, they are part and parcel of not only the culture of Korea, but the very the, the stuff of what Korea is made of, literally. Exactly, and these people, so, these dynastic leaders, the 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 great fathers, are. Um, are incapable of making mistakes. They are incapable. Uh, this is the lore. This is part of the. This is part of Juche, though, is that they are incapable of uh, error. Everything they say is perfect. Everything they're doing is perfect, and it's all about the country, about the nationalism. You know, about our people. Like you mentioned, there are rituals that they engage in, uh, and and it's and you wouldn't look at it on the on the surface and go, oh, that's a religious ritual. But yet, there's a gymnastic event that happens on a, I believe on a yearly basis I didn't write the name of it well, it's it's the same parallel in Nuremberg you know if you look at it's a way that you bring this you know a spiritual fervor with light sound action the whole you know milieu of 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 art really you know down to wearing your little Kim badge Go to yeah. prison if you don't wear your Kim badge, right? Exactly. Just like if you remember the party, you had your little swastika on there. So, you know, spectacle is big in, in totalitarian states, and it's a means of control because you're controlling the message. You know, you're seeing these, you know, these very ornate, you know, flip card uh, demonstrations with political slogans, pictures of the Kims, all orchestrated as a way to, uh, you know, it, with religious fervor, going back to your point. That's right. Uh, about, and, you know, and, these, the, and these rituals are put together, these political exercises, gymnastic exercises, however you want to classify them, um, with, you know, subunits, then larger units, and then larger units. And the punishment drive is, you know, if the little unit messes up, then that means that the big unit's messed up, and then, you know, everybody's punished, and there's there's definitely a lot of punishment drive. This is not Olympics yeah, I'm talking the, about. Off to the re-education camp, right? That's for, right. For 
flippers. That's, no, that I, you know, it sounds like a joke here, but over there, it's not. No, it's scary stuff. It's actually really life and death stuff. If you don't do your part in that ritual properly, you'll die. I mean, we're not even screwing around. It's like for real; they'll kill you. So it's a it's a very serious thing. And then you have the other part of this that I was reading about is. Uh, is how the state extends down into each individual family and yeah. how they they don't call him dear father or great father just cuz he his a is it's a hierarchy with a father figure and that is um that's pretty scary because what you have is an inculcation of children literally yeah. from when they're born and this has been multi-generational now so this has been going on for decades so you have people raised from birth in this situation where they have no other reality than that this great leader is the guy to be listened to and and followed uh you know like for real like this is this is and you'll see this God, too so and, to and if at any time the kims i mean going back to uh kim il-sung when he would go on walkabout you know you would have people just weeping you know trying to touch him it's almost you know, like the touching the robe of Christ, the, the hem of Christ's robe or something, you know, looking for literally spiritual enrichment or a miracle or something. I mean, just over the emotive, over, you know, just overwhelmed with emotion because of who this person was. You know, he's a, he's a savior of the nation. Exactly. Uh, and so, and that's scary stuff again, because that's another thing that, yeah, you may not have uh, this, you know, modern army, but I'll tell you what, the fervor of somebody that is, you know, has that worship you know worships their leader that way uh, my gosh it's like the hitler youth during the end of world war ii man 14 year olds running against tanks that's because right. they could that's because right. the fear said so it's exactly and that's that's not a that's this is not a small point um no. because because this is not the same as iran or iraq or or other countries in the middle east this is a different thing this is this is north korea and, and it is a destructive cult so, and it is this cult of well, personality. So it's not a, it's, you know, people don't quite get this sometimes with Scientology when they only get a surface level look at what's going on in Scientology, that they think that, you know, the Sea Org are all just waiting to be freed from, you know, the tyranny of David Miscavige. And it's, it's not like that. These it's people just, are. It's, when you're inculcated with a level like that, the, the, the propensity of, for sacrifice is, un, is just unreal. Exactly. We, and, and so this is why the state, a state like this can exist. People will starve for the betterment of the state because that's just the way they've been taught. That's you right. Know? And it's they don't just, blame the dear leader for that. They look to no. him for salvation from it, and they count on the fact that he's going oh. to save them from that. It's a whole different point of view from I'm a slave in a slave society, and I'm well, just toiling and, and away. It, and actually, more insidiously, they will blame themselves. I just didn't like work hard enough. I didn't. Oh, right. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't plot. You know. I didn't. You know. Prune my my fruit trees or you know till my plot appropriately. Exactly. Even though I've not had fresh seed from the government for three weeks, still my fault. I'm sorry, dear leader. I will try harder. That's right. You know. It's, and, it, it's and, it's, and it really has to almost be lived to fully appreciate how that mindset works. I mean, there were times in my life where I absolutely would have died for Scientology. No question about it. I would have thrown myself in front of a bus if I thought that was what was necessary. And as a Sea Org member, while I never really thought of this in terms of life or death, I mean, I never really thought it would be necessary to throw myself in front of a bus for David Miscavige, 
there were times during my years in the Sea Org where I would have done that had it been presented to me as a, as a choice. That's how much I believed in him. And, and, you know, is one reason why when I found out how horrible it all was, I was like, oh, fuck this guy. And I, you know, worked so hard to take him down. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a reverse thing on that. And so here you have, you have to appreciate the skill set here of a family that can turn an entire country into that mindset. Well, and here we are in the irony of it, aren't we? We talked about this, that both Scientology and and the and Juche are all about the independence of thought for the individual, you know, the 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 ability to be self-determinate in one's life. Yeah. Yet you're you're so heavily controlled that there's absolutely no room for making any kind of determination on your own. It's all, you know, it's preordained by the control mechanisms that are in place. That's right. But it's done in such a way that's so subtle, it gives you the impression that you have some semblance of control. Yet at the end of the day, your control is all dedicated toward the betterment of the state, not yours, you know, yourself or your family or anybody in your immediate area. Exactly. So that's what's even, you know, the message is so, just so subtle yet so insidious. And Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I wanted to get that across because I want to really stress why it is that you don't just go bomb a place like that and think, oh, we're liberating all these people, and they're going to be so thankful for us dropping all these bombs on them and destroying their dear father figure leader, and they're going to welcome us with open arms because they've just been dying for cell phones and McDonald's. That's not what's going on over there. So, well, I, so that's another reason why point. we should think very clearly about diplomacy, military, carrot stick, what kind of carrots can we offer these folks that they might you know, go for that would actually change so here you have, hearts here's and minds. Irony. We have to here's, undo here's decades of perfect. this, you know. Here's a perfect example. You have, you know, let's let's go back to World War II again, Berlin. It's been laid to waste by the Allies. You know, Bomber Harris at night, half Arnold during the day, the 8th Air Force at night, the RAF. Nothing left. Yet the Berliners, that's not what brought... Germany to its knees. It was a whole combination of other things. I mean, the British and the Blitz. Bombing, you know, violence does not necessarily force a collective populace toward a particular end state, that, you know, desirable end state. What really, and so then you have the beginning of the Cold War when Berlin is divided amongst the Allies and Russia. When Russia creates the Berlin blockade, it wasn't bombs, it wasn't military uh, force that broke that, it was the airlift. It was bringing in coal. It was pilots dropping Hershey bars out the window right. with little parachutes to the West German kids. It was one of these great humanitarian efforts that broke the hold of Soviet, uh, you know, the Soviet hold on Berlin. It wasn't, you know, fighter jets. It wasn't, you know, the tanks. It wasn't a raid, you know, forces. It was goodwill. And this, I think, and this is what is going to win, I think, the, 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 the stalemate on the Korean Peninsula, if, as you say. It's not like we need to send B-2s over there dropping cell phones and wrap, you know, hamburgers. I think it's, but it is, it's opening up to the world of ideas. And, yes. and maybe, and, and also it's, we can't do the same thing. It's like it, when people went in with all kinds of food to Belson or Auschwitz to these concentration camp victims, all of a sudden they're eating all this rich food and killing themselves because their digestion can't handle it. Right. Same thing would apply in Korea. You know, we can't go in there and just overwhelm them with all this, you know, Western largesse. We have to sit there and say, what's a reasoned way 
to turn around the mindset here. And exactly. that's going to be not propaganda. It's not going to be, you know, religion. It's not going to be, it's just going to be, you know, a little bit of humanitarian common sense. Now what that is, you know, I, I will leave that to better minds, but I'm thinking, you know, certainly it's going to be food. It's going to be, you know, infrastructure. I mean, there's so many, I would encourage viewers, you want to understand where Korea is, go out and look at a map light on the web of Korea. Look at the south versus the north and see how dark North Korea is at night. That's right. They have exactly. no infrastructure. Exactly. I mean, no power, no grid. I mean, it's all around Pyongyang and it's all around military installations and concentration camps. That gives you an idea what the priorities are over there. Yeah, exactly. You want to break the whole of the, the ills, you know, the you want to break the ills of the Kim Jong-uns and the Kim Ills and the Kim Il-sungs, you go in there and you say, hey, let's we're going to bring infrastructure to some poor farmer that's sitting on the other side of the chosen reservoir that's right and i think do that it. would be uh you know certainly should be part of you know this negotiation process and that sort of thing now here's now my personal take on this is that i am uh fearful with the um you know sort of destabilization and and depopulation of the state department that i've heard about i don't know if this is absolutely true but state department officials have spoken about this on media so i I, you know, I sort of think that there's something there to that. Uh, I know the North Korean guys who have been in the State Department for decades have retired. So I, I'm not sure that they're getting all the best advice necessarily on this situation in the executive branch of our government right now. And I don't have a lot of faith in our current president as an individual to understand Everything we've talked about in this podcast, that's not to say that he's, that the briefing is not available to him. I mean, I'm sure he can get detailed briefings much, much, much better than anything we could put together. But is he availing himself of these briefings? Does he truly understand what he's dealing with? I don't think that he does, and I'm concerned about that because this is, this is a hornet's nest. I think we've painted a pretty good picture of the complexities of some of what's going on with this, and I'm just... You know, I'm a little doubtful that, given our history. So we've not had any diplomatic. We've not had any diplomatic presence in the DPR for yonks. You know, we are the embassy. We we our diplomatic relations with North Korea are run from Beijing, so through our embassy presence in Beijing. So um, part of it is that there has to be a nuanced approach to China, which right now we're you know futzing around with trade embargoes and all and and all these other things. You know, there's a long game here, and I think that's where my concern is about, you know, the current administration, is that when you have chaos in your forward-facing organizations, which is, in this case, the State Department, or even in your in the intelligence community. I mean, he's had a contentious relationship with the intelligence community. Right. Not that they're always right. Somebody's got to feed him the National Estimate of the Day, which is a book about that thick that he, you know, should be reading every day. Which is kind of a synopsis from all the twelve intelligence gathering organizations in the United States, which is quite formidable. We have a lot of ways to know what's going on over there. So, what's the, you know what what is the conclusions being drawn from that? Um, I, I think we're, I'm seeing more coherence than we've seen in a while. But to what end? This is the thing. Right. Where is you know where are we going? Right. You know, can we use this as a, I mean, smart diplomacy would say, let's engage the Chinese and maybe there's a way that we can placate some of the issues we have with them along with using them as a proxy to help us mitigate what's going on in Korea. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, and certainly that we can do that. We have the way to do that. But is is Mr. Is President Trump, can he think that way? I don't know. 
it's I'm not gonna it's it's uh, it's the you know statecraft is something that goes but you need you can't have the attention span of a two-year-old to be an effective statesman and exactly. this is where you know this is what we need and you I know mean, here's an example we I talk about both and friends in the morning I mean I've really I have a hard time <laughs> putting my faith in this man it's not even a matter well, of left po left-wing policies and right-wing policies it's it's the guy you know well, let's take you know you let's take trump off the table what it, it's a general problem with american statecraft i mean our problems with iran go back to 1956 when we overthrew the shah so the same thing is what's yeah. going on in korea it goes back to you know the korean war even beyond i mean so these are things that have been percolating for a long time and the fix is not going to be a tweet it's not going to be firing <laughs> rex tillerson and putting my ponyo in there it's not it's going to be a very nuanced, multi-tiered approach, and right. you know, this is where I I share your concerns. And certainly, having been in the military, you know, we're the last bunch of people who want to go over there and get into a shooting match with the Koreans over something that is completely nonsensical. We don't need. There's nothing we need in Korea outside of geopolitical stability, right? right. And that doesn't necessarily have to be through force of arms. And I think this is where we have to back off with the rhetoric. Again, I feel like we're in this, you know, deja vu. You know, it's, it's again, it's a yellow journalistic period. We're, we're, I'm reliving what happened in the Spanish-American War because we've got somebody a little bit on the ropes. Hey, let's hammer them. Rather than yeah. have them on the ropes, let's throw them a bucket of water, maybe resuscitate them and get them back to the table. Let's talk, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, as, as, is... as Winston Churchill said, is way way better than war war right i mean this is you know at the end of the day this is what politicians should be doing you know the yeah. military is not there as as a uh is you know a means of of enforcing one's individual will it's it's more about enforcing the will of a nation state and right now there's no uh, korea is no longer the threat it what it once was in my right. view so it, it's not justified the no, level exactly. of rhetoric well I was I was hoping we could get, and I think we have um, a, a good survey of this with a with a much you know more three dimensional understanding of what's going on, and I always appreciate learning about this stuff because my viewpoint changes, my ideas thing about these things change, and I, and it really highlights for me the uh, gross disservice that the media on all channels are doing for us in not giving us this full you know, briefing and, 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 and packet of information about what it is that we're dealing with. Instead, it's all about tweets and, and, and personalities and, and Kim Jong-un versus President Trump as individuals when we're dealing with a much bigger picture than that when we're dealing with foreign relations and country Well, yeah, and, and again, memories are long. This is the thing. Memories are long in that part of the world. And, and, and you, don't, you just don't come out and make policy in 140 words. Right. right? I mean, this is yeah. characters, if you will. Thank you. And uh, and of and also there's so many different conduits that we've lost the ability to think. And this is a problem that has befuddled the best thinkers for a long time, at least at the, the geopolitical level. Here we have an opportunity almost we've almost stumbled into it, if you will, to fix this. And I yep. think in a way that would be mutually acceptable to both the North Koreans and the United States. And I'm hoping that, you know, clearer minds will prevail and that we can do something about this. Exactly. So, yeah. All right, Jeff. Reason well, thought. <laughs> exactly. Food for thought. Okay, folks. Yeah. Well, listen, anybody out there, uh, I would really love to hear your feedback on everything we've been talking about here 
I hope we have given some food for thought to you guys, and I hope that this will actually stimulate you guys looking into this even more deeply yourselves, because that's kind of the point of, of this. It wasn't to um, sermonize. I, I know I throw my opinions out there quite readily, but, um, but really my effort is really to just to give you guys some things to think about out there and give you some more information to contextualize what's going on. It helped me. I hope it will help you. But, uh, but like I said, give me any of your comments, uh, good, bad, or sideways, in the comment section on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Um, Jeff, did you have any final words before we wrap up here? No, I just think that, you know, I always want to encourage folks to go beyond the soundbite medium. You know, read both ends of the spectrum. You know, don't be afraid to challenge your biases. I think we're living right now in an age where we're afraid of alternative opinion. In fact, you put a very good post on Facebook about this. I was reading that, you know, yep. now, when, when we yep. live in a protected environment, when we're afraid to, to push the boundaries of thought, we end up with the status quo that we're in right now. And these are things that we need to challenge ourselves. So hopefully today we're making, we're trying to challenge your, your thoughts about this. Uh, because the whole thing with Korea, the whole behavior at, at the nation, at the the, the national, the national level, if you will, is a microcosm of I think of you know a lot of problems with society right now. Is we're we're not going beyond that five minute soundbite. Exactly. So you know, exactly. challenge yourself. Read. Exactly. Pick up a newspaper. You know, the web is not where you need to be. Go to a library. I mean, there's other places. Inform yourselves. That's an informed electorate is what changes things. So that's what cool, I'll leave man. you with. <laughs> okay. Well, th again, right. thank you very Thanks. much. Yes. And uh, we'll My see pleasure. you guys next week. Bye-bye.